Hello, fellow paranormal aficionados. Welcome back to Haunted 518. This is episode 5. So this week, I'm drinking Strawberry Rhubarb Gose by Westbrook Brewing Company. I got this ale when I was passing through Wilmington recently. It's brewed with strawberry, rhubarb, cinnamon, and vanilla, and it's just delicious. So last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Steve Brott, the owner of the South Glens Falls Paranormal Society. He's also the property manager of the Saratoga County Homestead, or Homestead Sanitarium. The homestead was opened in 1914 and treated patients for tuberculosis until 1960. The original building was wood, but was replaced by the brick building that stands today in 1932. The institution reopened in 1961 as the Saratoga County Infirmary. Some visitors of the building point to the things left behind, like beds, books, kitchen supplies, medical supplies, as evidence of the facility being shut down suddenly. However, if this was in fact reopened as the Saratoga County Infirmary, then the left behind items would not have been related to the sanitarium. Saratoga County officials sold the building in, ni- in the 1980s to Bruce Howren, who was planning to reopen it as a healthcare-related facility. The building remains vacant, but still stands. Thrill-seekers have often traveled to this building in the hopes of capturing some ghostly activity. The homestead was sold via tax auction in September 2019 to current owner James Walk from Corinth, Texas. The homestead is set to undergo renovations and James is working with a local contact to to start scheduling photography tours and will eventually open access to most parts of the hospital. The caretaker's house is scheduled as the first stage in the rehab for the entire property. Plans for the property include creating a retreat for veterans, adding some local businesses, creation of agricultural training courses, and outdoor gardens along with a living museum of the site's history as a tuberculosis hospital. Last night, October 24th, Destination Fear, which is a show on the Travel Channel, had an episode about the sanitarium. Make sure you check it out. The first thing that gave me chills were the aerial shots of the property. I had no idea it was so secluded or so big. Honestly, I grew up around here and never even knew about the property. Almost no one has been allowed in this property over the years, and Steve is currently working on the restorations, which I think is pretty brave of him. The Destination Fear team caught some interesting footage of a shadow figure crossing the hall on camera. Steve mentioned that the team told them their night was incredibly active. I'll post some photos on our social media of the sanitarium, be sure to, and be sure to check out the show. Next, I wanted to read a story that I got from a personal friend of mine this week about the Clinton Correctional Facility up in Dannemora that I actually talked about in episode two. She referenced in her text to me the line from my um, the episode where I mentioned it, where I said, or perhaps up in Plattsburgh, your dorm room never felt quite right. She said, literally, I had that experience as a student and then a security guard at the Clinton dorms in Plattsburgh. We had apparitions caught on CCTV, dryer doors would fly open and break, hallways exit doors would fly open, the ghosts would go through the doors into dorms, It was an Air Force base and barracks. Some soldier killed himself in those dorms, I guess. I had to do rounds at night as a guard alone at 4 a.m. Not my cup of tea. 
amazing but creepy as fuck when you're alone. (laughs) And then she goes on to say, So believe it or not, my brother and my boyfriend, Albie, and I were all guards there at the same time. My brother had been a guard there for a while, and Albie and I moved up north for a bit and needed work, so we became licensed and had an inn. Now my brother Greg is a CO at Danamora. I personally was so freaked out by working there that I never did security again. There's a third building there for the dorms that's completely abandoned. It always felt like I was being watched as I did my rounds around there. And the dining hall, that dining hall was exceptionally scary at night. Nothing really ever happened except for noises, but the Champlain building of the dorms was insane. As a student, if my rodent if my roommate didn't stay at night, I just drove home. The main the main building on campus was creepy as fuck also. There's a rumor that in the basement, a janitor took his life by hanging. I went down there on one of my brother's rounds. So fucking creepy. Help me was written on the wall and written on the brick on the wall. He worked there for a while. He And he would probably have some ultra weird stories also. I'll definitely check with him to see if he has anything to add so that gave me a little bit of the chills if anyone or if you or anyone you know worked at or works at the facility definitely email us with your experience there next i wanted to mention the haunted tour I went on last night. I spoke about it in an earlier episode, but I finally had the chance to actually check out the Victorian Candlelight Tour at the Schenectady County Historical Society. It was like a step back in time, walking around the beautiful stockade district in Schenectady on an absolutely perfect crisp fall night. Windows were adorned with flickering candles, orange and yellow leaves scattered all over the cobblestones, a lantern in the tour guide's hand really set the mood for an hour and a half walk. Walking around and seeing the incredible architecture while hearing stories of murder, death, and the paranormal with familiar notable names like Yates was so much fun. One homeowner even came out to tell us her story. It had me thinking, I should look into that area a little more. So here's a few stories that I found. Victorian culture was passionate about death and mourning. The nation experienced an unprecedented loss of young life during the Civil War, leaving families looking for ways to recognize the passing of their loved ones. Elaborate mourning rituals developed, including dressing in black for months or even years with, and withdrawing from society. A woman in mourning might write on stationery edged in black or wear jewelry made from the woven hair of a deceased loved one. Victorians embraced death and mourning, and it is no surprise that some of our best stories from that time period include three stories about ghosts near Green Street in Schenectady. There is a little story There's a story about a little boy ghost in a Green Street apartment, perhaps the young son of one of the servants who lived in the Ellis Brothers mansion. The boy may have lived in a small servants' quarters building just behind the mansion and would have run back and forth between the two. He is dressed in brown pants and jacket with a white shirt and is known to be mischievous by throwing candlesticks and other small objects in the present-day apartments. The woman who lives in this apartment has reported several encounters with the boy ghost. 
At night, she felt a hand touching a sore spot on her spine, making the pain go away. But when she woke up, there was no one there. She once saw a candle wiggle out of its holder by itself and fly across the room to hit the wall. She believes the young ghost wants attention, so she, so if she talks to him, he does not care as much about mischief. When she loses items, she asks the ghost to put them back before she starts searching, and they usually return on their own. The little, go the little boy ghost is a benevolent spirit and just wants to have a little fun. The original burying ground for the stockade was located about halfway down Green Street. By the 19th century, the burial ground was getting crowded, and they decided to build a new and bigger cemetery called Vale Cemetery. All of the people buried in the old cemetery were moved to Vale. Vale was one of the many new Victorian rural cemeteries, built not just to hold graves, but to serve as a place of nature where the living could enjoy picnic lunches and strolls alongside those who had passed on. Vale Cemetery was dedicated in 1857, just south 18 was dedicated in 1857. Just south of Vale Park, there used to be a grand mansion, which was known to be haunted. Dishes and trays were snatched from the maid's hands, and forks and spoons were grabbed as guests tried to eat. Dishes rattled in empty rooms, windows mysteriously opened and closed, and doors banged when there was no wind. The mansion was torn down decades ago. Perhaps the ghost was a spirit whose grave had been moved from the stockade to Vale Cemetery and did not care for its new neighbors. Further down the road, Green Street meets Front Street, another street filled with older houses. In one such house, there is a recent story about a young woman who rented an apartment. The landlord told her she probably wouldn't last long because the building was haunted. She told the landlord that she didn't believe in ghosts, so she soon learned why so many tenants had left before. Doors would open and shut by themselves, and at night her blankets were pulled off her by invisible hands. One morning she woke up to all her things strewn about the apartment. There were cold spots in the rooms that, that wouldn't warm up no matter how high she turned the heat up. The young woman decided she couldn't take it anymore and informed the landlord she would be moving out immediately. The last night she spent there, were, they were peaceful. Clearly the spirit who lived there was not in favor of having a roommate. Late at night at 4 South Church Street, some say the sound of pacing footsteps can be heard. The number of paces is always the same, 22. In the 1870s, Henry Horstmeyer owned this house, and every night about midnight, he would hear someone pacing back and forth in the living room. He counted 22 paces, but when he examined the room, he found that it was only 18 paces wide. He hired carpenters to find an explanation, but they could find none. Older inhabitants were able to provide the answer. During the Civil War, a 16-year-old boy was hoping to enlist. He was afraid he would be rejected because of his small size, and so on the night before he was to report for duty, he spent the night awake, pacing the floor back and forth. He was accepted into the army and later died at Gettysburg, but it is said that his spirit returned to the house to pace his small 22 paces for eternity. In the 1700s, Riverside Park was lined with small fishing docks and natives would routinely sell fish to settlers. One of, these natives, one of these natives was an old Mohawk who was well known in the area for his fishing and hunting knowledge. One day he visited the stockade and gave a large present of fish to one of the townspeople without asking for any money in return. 
The great spirit calls me was his response when asked why. He returned the to the river in his canoe. Boys swimming in the river reported that though his canoe was traveling against the current, they could not figure out how, for the Indian sat erect with his arm f arms folded, not touching the paddles. His canoe was found floating in the river without him, and nobody was ever found, and no body was ever found. A Dutchman traveling down the river thought he saw his friend on the shore, but as soon as his boat touched the bank, the Mohawk turned his head and disappeared. For some time after, the Mohawk was, was seen sitting near the river, his knees pulled up to his chin, but whenever someone spoke to him, he disappeared. Some ghosts are uneasy, some mysterious, and some, apparently, are rather generous. A poor shoemaker and his wife lived in an old house where the Erie Canal used to run. One evening, as the shoemaker sat out on his porch as the sun was setting, an old man dressed in a gray coat passed by and motioned for the man to follow. The shoemaker was afraid and stayed on the porch, and then the man disappeared. The shoemaker told his wife the story, and she determined they would sit on the porch the next night, and this time they would follow the man if he appeared. The next evening, they sat together as the sun went down, and again the man in the gray coat appeared. He beckoned to them, and this time the shoemaker and his wife followed. He led them through a garden gate to the backyard by an apple tree, then pointed to the ground and disappeared. The shoemaker's wife marked the spot, and the shoemaker found a shovel and started to dig. To their astonishment, they dug up a pot of gold coins, buried long ago. It was the lost treasure of one of the victims of the 1690 Schenectady Massacre, and now the ghost could rest in peace, knowing his lost gold was now found. Next, I wanted to read a few stories continuing in the Schenectady area from the book Ghosts of the Northeast, again by the author David Pitkin. The first story is called Plymouth Street. In 1976, radio personality Don Weeks moved his family into a large house on Plymouth Street in Schenectady, New York. Newly hired at WGY, Don eventually became the Capital District's number one morning show host. In 1976, however, he had to rent a home and the big old house was what he could afford. Things were quiet for the first few months, he said. Then I noticed that the attic door wouldn't stay shut. I installed the lock, but often found the door open anyway. When I'd go up to look out the dormer window, I felt an abnormal cold spot, even in the summer. Our dog Murphy was always always guarded the attic door and would and would not let the kids go up there getting very agitated when they tried my wife sue and i often awoke to the loud ticking of a big ben alarm clock at about 3 to 3 30 a.m we didn't own one one night she woke to see a filmy woman beckoning her to the hallway then disappearing then she heard over, then she heard our daughter calling out when sue checked she found her running a high fever one night, Don stayed up late watching The Tonight Show, gathering inspiration from Johnny Carson. As usual, Murphy slept behind the couch. When Don went up to bed and Murphy started up the stairs, suddenly the dog darted past him and growled. Looking up, Don saw an indistinct woman at the top of the stairs. She was like a photographic negative, dark where she would be light and light where normally dark. 
I couldn't make out her features. Then, in a flash, she imploded into herself. Whoosh! And nothing remained. I knew I'd been watching too much Carson, <laughs> he grinned. A few days after the vision, he noticed a light shining beneath the attic door, but when he opened it, everything was dark. Then his children began to hear noises in that stairway, and again he found the door open. When they told Don, he went into the attic and pleaded, I don't know who you are, but please leave my family alone. For the rest of the time he lived there, there was no further disturbance. Attempting to paint the dormer, which even today looks different from the house, Don couldn't keep his ladder steady. When it touched the dormer, dormer, it began to vibrate and slide, even on a still day when there was no wind. Time passed, Don endeared himself to his radio audience, ratings grew, and promotions followed. After a few years, they were able to move. With the house empty, Don said a silent goodbye and dropped the house keys onto a wooden table. Alone, he tended to one last detail, then reached for his keys. They were gone. Sorry, but we've got to leave, he shouted, walking toward the stairs. He found the keys on the newel post. In the meantime, Sue was outside saying goodbye to her friend across the street, reminiscing about former residents of their house. The neighbor said, that lady had problems. She was always so sad. Her husband was cheating on her and she couldn't stand it. She used to sit up in the attic, in that attic window and watch the children playing down the street. The husband usually dragged in around 3 or 3.30 in the morning. One night she slit her wrists in the attic, but it didn't kill her, so she went into her husband's shop in the cellar and hanged herself. Today, Don Weeks is, a fam is famous for his Halloween stunts and remote broadcasts from haunted houses in the Capital District. Few of his listeners know that for years, he actually lived what is, what is Halloween. The next story is called Release. Gary's wife, Barbara, died soon after her 40th birthday, leaving him to raise two teens. As the pain of Barbara's passing subsided, he joined a local singles group. At their monthly Friday night dance, he met Carol Ann, a most attractive woman, began dating her, and soon introduced her to his children and showed her their, and showed her their home. As I stepped inside the house on Maryland Drive in Burnt Hills, New York, Carol Ann told me, I felt a strong presence, as if I was being watched. Over the next three years, we became engaged, and Gary invited me and my daughter to join his family. Before long, I began to have strange experiences. Whenever I went into the shower, but only when I reached the point where I had my hair all lathered with shampoo, the hot water would turn off. Every time. At first, I thought it was my husband who was quite a prankster. Later, I realized that it happened even when Gary wasn't home. As a professional woman, Carol Ann treasured her home time, especially when she could cook a special meal. New problems arose that I had never experienced before or since, she said. Every time I came near the stove, I burned myself. I just couldn't avoid it, though I tried to be exceedingly careful. It happened so frequently that my husband and children began to, began to comment on the burn marks on my hands and arms. At night, my daughter and I began to sleep with a nightlight for the first time in our lives, and sometimes when I worked nights, she would call me to reassure herself, as there would be loud noises in the house that she couldn't explain. These noises were very unsettling to myself as well as to her. Many times I'd awake with a start, mystifying Gary, who was so oblivious to the strange noises and events. 
One evening, startled by awake by something, I saw a mound-shaped dark shadow slowly move along one wall of our bedroom. I suggested to Gary that we might have a ghost, but he scoffed at the idea. Soon, however, he had to admit that in several rooms he did smell a perfume that I didn't use, but he knew who had. Barbara. Finally, one evening I found myself reeling down a flight of stairs for no apparent reason. Eventually, when I'd return home from work at night, I'd just sit there in the car, not wanting to enter this house where so much seemed out of control, where I felt in danger. I decided it would be best in my best interest to find another home. Our marriage seemed jeopardized by these events, but Gary and I both worked on an agreement to rebuild our relationship in a new location. By that time, we both suspected that Barbara had not fully left what, we, what had been her house and children. At first, I was afraid we might be followed, Carol Ann said. But when we moved out, I felt as if a tremendous burden had lifted from me. Gary and Carol Ann didn't discuss most of these events with their children. I never actually discussed my suspicion about Barbara with my daughter because I was worried it would make her afraid to stay in the house. When we had moved to our new home and we were taking a walk one day, she turned to me and said, You know, Mom, I never felt alone in that house. Carol Ann sighed, knowing she had done the right thing. The current owners of the house seem happy with their purchase and have no experiences to relate, so it seems that Barbara may have seen the light and decided to release herself into a greater love. The next story is entitled Dean Street. Steve is a repair technician living on Dean Street in Niskayuna, New York, just outside of Schenectady. He's lived there most his life and knew the Howe family. Their daughter, Karen, was his wife's best friend in high school. Mrs. H died in 1985 and her husband passed away in 1991. Following his wake, Steve and his wife, Evelyn, made an offer to buy the Howe house, which they'd always liked and Karen accepted. We moved in after Christmas, and one of the first thing I noticed is that my pack of cigarettes kept disappearing, said Steve, oftentimes entire unopened packs. On some level, I remembered the house were both smokers, though I didn't put these things together at first. Another night, we sat watching TV in the living room when suddenly pots and pans started crashing together in the kitchen. It was awfully loud, almost as if a cabinet and its contents had fallen off the wall. My wife and I bolted to the kitchen expecting to find a mess. Nothing was out of place. We looked at each other and scratched our heads. We were starting to get the message that the prior owners hadn't moved out yet. Things would disappear. They still do today, said Steve. Then we began to hear footsteps in the attic over the living room. Most of the time now we hear noise up there. We also hear unexplained sounds in the kitchen and basement. There is always a sense that someone else is in the house, though we don't feel threatened in any way. Whenever we hear unusual noises, we take a head count of people and pets. Almost always, it's evident that none of us is making the sounds. In December of 1998, I received a small box of repair parts in the mail. I checked back to make sure the order was correct and everything was there, then left the box open on the arm of a chair overnight. When I came downstairs in the morning, I found the box tipped over on the floor, though when I repacked the box, I found a large piece was missing. I left the room to ask Evelyn if she'd taken it, but just a few minutes later, I found the piece on the floor where it wasn't when I repacked the box just a few minutes earlier. 
Karen often drops by when she visits the area and thinks the mysterious events are humorous. Steve's children sleep in her old bedroom. The treasured remote control for their bedroom TV suddenly disappeared several years ago, and the children protest they'd never, they'd, they'd never have been irresponsible enough to lose it. Its loss means the children now have to change channels manually, which they find irritating. They blame it on the ghost and grown-ups not understanding. Karen has one suspicion as to why her parents may not be in a hurry to vacate. Mr. H bought the kitchen stove as a Christmas present for his wife, who used it only a month before she passed. She'd wanted a new stove for years and likely stays in the kitchen rattling those pots and pans to let others know, sh to let others know she still appreciates the gifts. Summing it up, Karen feels, Karen feels she has left the house in the possession of both family and friends. And lastly, this story is called The Houses on Helicon Street. In 1997, when they moved into their new house on Halicon Street in Scotia, New York, Tom found a gargoyle statue on the back porch, decided it wasn't his favorite decor, and disposed of it. A few days after they completed moving in, Tom came downstairs to ask his wife, Susan, the identity of the child watching him from the front doorway of their son's bedroom. At first, he and Susan thought it was the neighborhood child visiting. However, after he felt a woman lay down on the bed then disappear and knowing it wasn't Susan, he knew the house had ghosts. Right away we were intrigued, says Susan. My son often dreamed of being chased by dead people in a cemetery. His closet door would lock itself and we couldn't open it without removing the latch. He'd awaken in the night to hear scratching on his bedroom walls. His alarm clock would go off at all hours. In 1999, I heard a bang upstairs and ran into my son's room. My son hadn't heard the noise, but said he'd just watched the bedroom knob, the bedroom doorknob turning itself. A few nights later, Tom came home from work and didn't recognize me in bed, said Susan. He saw a sleeping woman with long hair instead of me, and then she faded and I was right there. After he went to sleep, I awoke to hear a woman's voice say, it's all right. Then I saw her floating by the bed in a long dress, and all these incidents took place in just the first six months there. One night in 1998, our son was camping out in the living room downstairs, said Tom. When I went to the bathroom, I saw his bedroom door opening and closing rapidly. Walking to the door, I found it tightly closed. In the morning, I told Susan I also remembered seeing something like a heat wave right in front of the door. Our, our garbage disposal turns itself on and off. We have a downstairs telephone that beeps when picked up, and several times when we're all in bed, we've heard that beep, as if someone just lifted the handphone. I know we have ghosts, but we don't know what they're up to or how to understand them. Are they trying to give us a message or show us something? One night, after reading Saratoga County Ghosts for a while, Susan placed it on the bedside table and picked up the Bible to read for 20 minutes before turning on the light, turning out the light. In a few minutes, there was a bang, and turning on her light, she found the ghost book had been tossed under the bed. Tom and Susan knew the names of the previous owners, but not their traumas. They want to ease the spirit's predicaments, if possible, and ask me to investigate the house. My intuitive friends Paul and Sue W. accompanied me to the Halcon Street neighborhood. Early in the 20th century, a man 
Many of the area's residents worked at the General Electric plant in Schenectady. The street contained working people's homes. We knew nothing about the house except its location. Sue W. usually explores the house by herself first because her receptivity is better in solitude. Paul and I accompanied her a second time. As we climbed the stairs, Sue W. heard a child or young woman crying and glass breaking. She saw a small blonde boy about five years old on the landing. Entering a small computer room at the top of the stair, all three of us felt discomfort in the neck or upper arm area on our bodies. I experienced a sharp pain below my left ear, which did not go away until we left the room. Paul experienced sharp stomach pains in the main bedroom. Sue W. felt her arms wanted to rise as though she might fly as we headed for the son's bedroom. When we entered, we observed the wallpaper covered with fighter jet designs. Sue W. could see where the urge to fly had originated. In the bathroom, she saw a blonde-haired woman in her 20s opposite the shower. At the same time, she wondered aloud if a large piece of furniture had originally stood there. In the dining room, she sensed a very different decor that preceded the new owners. In the living room, Paul perceived a man nervously reading a trolley schedule while glancing out the window. As they entered the bright, modern, and tidy kitchen, Paul and Sue W. again heard breaking glass, though nothing was out of place. In the cellar, Sue W. felt a strong negativity and saw a ghostly man who wanted to smash shelving and toys and turn the family's stereo on and off. Paul saw a laborer in hat and overalls sprawled on the floor near a coal furnace that no longer exists and drinking from a pint flask. In the attic, Sue W. heard the name Martha and saw a little boy crying, Daddy, Daddy, At the attic's rear window, she saw the ghost child turn toward us and say, I fell. The owners walked through with us a third time. Susan and Tom informed us that the previous owners had a tiled mud shower in the cellar where Paul had seen the laborer. A prior owner, Tom said, a construction worker, showered there when he when he returned home. Whether he and the phantom drinker are the same, we couldn't tell. We felt the combination of alcohol and anger may cause the breaking glass sounds. The owners have no knowledge of a dead or injured child in the property's histories, a matter that we agreed needed more investigation. The pains were experienced upstairs might have come from illnesses that led to deaths of the still lingering former residents. Next door, neighbor Lisa's house dates from the 1920s. Many nights when her husband works late her and her daughter is in bed, she, heard, she hears footsteps on the stairs. Matt, is that you, she'll call? There's no response as I drift back to sleep. I'll sometimes feel someone sit on the bed. It's emotionally difficult to fear, feel a presence but see nothing. I know it's someone from the house's past. On another occasion when I was pregnant again, I heard footsteps in the hall that turned into my bedroom. A a minute later, I felt a gentle hand placed on my stomach. I I didn't know whether or not to be scared. One morning, I folded my sleeping baby's blanket and placed it at the end of his bed. Re-entering a few minutes later, I found a blanket neatly, I found the blanket neatly and snugly tucked around the baby. Over the past two years, I've seen a figure climbing the stairs, but only out of the corner of my eye. I can't tell if it's a man or a woman, but I wouldn't be surprised at both. 
I think some long ago residents are still quietly going about the lives they once lived here and they treasure children, she said. So needless to say, if you can visit the stockade, visit the Schenectady County Historical Museum, go on one of their tours and just spend time over in that district, you won't regret regret it. So as always, I wanted to mention the places I got some of my information from tonight. The first is Destination Fear, the second Ghosts of the Northeast by David Pitkin, and also the website gremsdolittlelibrary.com. Well, fellow paranormal aficionados, that's all for today, but keep your eye out for upcoming episodes dropping weekly on Sundays. And as always, just a reminder, we want to tell your stories, so send them in. Don't forget to check us out at haunted518.com where you can subscribe for updates. You can also find and follow our Haunted 518 Facebook and at the Haunted 518 on Instagram. Or you can always email us your story at thehaunted518 at gmail.com. And please rate and subscribe. That is really helpful for us. So until next time, happy haunting.